I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Chapters 1 to 11 describe for us the gospel of God. And the theme that rings out so clearly is mercy. When you understand the first 11 chapters, you come away saying, I don't deserve this. I deserve death and hell and punishment and condemnation. I don't deserve life and peace and love and glory. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of mercy. And as we're saying, what can I do to say thank you for all this mercy? Paul tells us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he adds that it's the only reasonable thing to do. It's the only rational thing to do. It's the only logical thing to do. In fact, I hope at this point that you're scratching your head and saying, what could possibly keep a Christian from laying his body on the altar before the Lord? What could possibly keep a person from doing that? You know what the answer is? It's pride. Your biggest deterrent to service for God is pride. Your biggest deterrent to being God's man or God's woman is too high an opinion of yourself. Pride says with Satan, I want to be like the Most High. I want to ascend above the clouds. I want to raise my throne above the stars. But you see, the call of God is not to ascend. The call of God is to descend. The call of God is not to exalt yourself. The call of God is to die to yourself. The call of God is to be a living sacrifice. And that's the absence of pride. You see, the one thing that keeps me from Romans 12, 1 and 2 is pride. And the very first evidence that I've been to the altar in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is humility. Notice verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, if you diagram that verse, it really comes down to this. Think about yourself. Now, most of us are told not to think about ourselves. Paul says, I want you to think about yourself. Most of us are taught the the acrostic joy. Jesus, others, and then yourself. Well, Paul gives us a different order in this passage. He says, first it's Jesus, verses 1 and 2. Then it's yourself, in verses 3 to 8. And then it's others, beginning in verse 9. You say, why this order? Well, the answer is because I must think about myself properly and where I fit into the body of Christ before I can then begin to think about others. You see, what God thinks of you will determine what you think of yourself and invariably 
what you think of others. Now Paul has established what God thinks of us. He is our merciful Father. But what are we to think of ourselves? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3 by giving us a negative and a positive. First of all, negatively he says, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Don't overweight yourself. Now that's a tendency we all have because of the fall. We all tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Walt Whitman said, I find no sweeter fat than that which sticks to my own bones. Ray Stedman once asked a physician friend, what's the most unusual thing you ever found about the human anatomy? And he said, the most unusual thing I found is that when you pat it on the back, the head swells. Now, we overrate ourselves in a couple ways. It's expressed in a couple ways. Number one, the most obvious way is by bragging, either openly or subtly. That's when we get in a conversation and our goal is to always bring it back to me, to talk about me and what I've done and what I'm doing and what I'm planning to do. It's like the song, I want to talk about me. First way is bragging, the second is more subtle, and that is we overrate ourselves by running ourselves down. It's like Charles Dickens' character, Uriah Heep, who always went around saying, I'm ever so humble, when the reality was he was just the opposite. You know how that works. You're, that's when you're, you're always saying, I can't do anything, I'm no good, I'm worthless, and why are you saying that? You're hoping someone will contradict you. And tell you just the opposite because, oh, that feels so good. Now, I find the best way to handle people like that is just to agree with them. <laughs> they say, I'm no good, I have no abilities, I'm useless, I'm ugly. And I say, you know, I've noticed that. <laughs> you know how you can tell it's pride? Because they get defensive right away. Which tells you that their false humility is just concealed pride. And so negatively, Paul says not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And then he tells us how to think about ourselves positively. In the middle of the verse, he says, but to think so as to have sound judgment. You're to think of yourself with sound judgment. One of the problems is we don't really see ourselves as we really are. We have a distorted view of ourselves. We have an inflated view of ourselves. We are puffed up. We tend to look at ourselves through the eyes of pride. And that is conforming to the world that Paul warned us about in verse 2. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul says, or John says, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When I look at myself through the eyes of pride, that's worldliness. And Paul says we're not to think that way. We are to have a transformed mind. And the first evidence that my mind is being transformed is that I have sound judgment when I look at myself. You see, having a renewed mind doesn't just mean I have a lot of knowledge. 
Because you can have a lot of knowledge and not have a renewed mind. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says knowledge does what? It puffs up. A renewed mind is expressed in having sound judgment. Sound judgment so that I can see myself as I really am. And you know how you will see yourself if you have a renewed mind that gives you sound judgment? Well, Christ gave his estimation of our abilities in John 15, 5. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In yourself, you can do nothing. And I would suggest that if you are willing to accept that verdict about yourself, then you are ready to become somebody for God. You see, humility is not a horizontal virtue. I don't get humility by comparing myself with other people. Humility is a vertical virtue. I get humility by seeing myself in reference to God. I get humility by coming to Romans 12, 1 and 2 and laying my body on the altar before the Lord. That's why James said in James 4, 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. When I come into the presence of the Lord and I see Him for who He really is, then I begin to see myself for who I really am. And that's when I'm thinking with sound judgment. And then he adds a, a second positive aspect at the end of verse 3. He says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now he's not referring here to the faith of salvation. He's talking here about the faith for service. He's talking here about the faith to be who we're called to be in the body of Christ. You see, that's the context. If you look down at verse 6, Paul says, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God has given each of us gifts. And in fact, Paul's referring to that at the beginning of verse 3 when he says, for through the grace given to me, I say to you. What's the grace given to Paul? It's his spiritual gift of being an apostle. And so he's talking in this context about spiritual gifts. He's talking about our place in the body of Christ. And what he's saying is that with, along with that gift of grace comes a measure of faith to operate in that gift. So salvation is a gift of grace applied by faith. And your spiritual gift is a gift of grace applied by faith. Now understand this. Your spiritual gift given by the grace of God, demands a certain amount of faith in which to operate. And this verse tells me that God has measured out just that exact amount of faith required to operate the gift that he's given you. And so when it comes to looking at yourself, when it comes to evaluating your spiritual gift, when it comes to seeing where you fit into the body of Christ... You're to see that with sound judgment. And what does that mean? That means you have no excuses. You don't say, I can't, because if God gives you a gift, he also gives you the necessary faith to carry out your gift. So you can't say, I can't. On the other hand, you can't say, I can do it without God. Or you can't say, I, God must have looked hard and fast to find me, somebody as special as me, to fulfill this role. No. You see, this passage tells me God's gift to you has nothing to do with you. He gave you the gift 
by grace. And on top of that, he gives you the faith to carry it out. So it's all God's doing. And so Paul says, I want you to think about yourself. Negatively, not more highly than you should. Not with pride. Positively, with sound judgment. That's humility. Seeing myself in reference to God and seeing that all that I have and the way I fit into the body of Christ is all from Him. And then he goes on to show us why this attitude is so important in verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The church is a body. Now, somehow, somewhere along the line, the church has lost the concept of what it ought to be. And the church today has turned into a spectator sport. It's become sort of the, the local religious production where trained professionals entertain while the majority of people sit and watch. People come, sit and watch, super pastor. He can preach, teach, counsel, evangelize, administrate, conciliate, communicate, fascinate, integrate. He can do it all. It's like when you watch the Olympics and you see a guy like Bruce Jenner do the decathlon. Here's a guy who does ten events. He sprints, he runs long, he throws the javelin, he does the pole ball, he does everything. Well, today in the church, we've created an environment where we encourage people to do decathlon-like events. But you see, God never designed the church to be that way. God designed the church to be a body. God never designed for anybody to be sitting and watching. You know, we talked today about clergy and laity. Those are not biblical terms. Somebody said clergy is somebody who's paid to be good. Laity is somebody who's good for nothing. <laughs> Erase that concept out of your mind. You see, every Christian is a minister. This is not a business. This is a body. This is not an organization. This is an organism. The church is referred to as the functioning body of Christ approximately 40 times in the New Testament. And so we are not just a group of people who are organized. We are an organism. We are alive. We all possess the Spirit of God. We all have the life of Christ inside of us. See, the church is not an automobile. An automobile is organized, it's very intricate, it's driven by a multi-talented pastor. The Bible doesn't say we're an automobile. The Bible says we are a body controlled by the living head, Jesus Christ. See, if we, you want to see how the church should function, just stand in front of a mirror and examine your body. God has given each of us a visual aid to help us understand. And there are three characteristics that stand out about the body. He mentions them in verses 4 and 5. The first is diversity in verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Diversity. 
In my body, I have arms, legs, hands, feet, fingers, toes, ears, nose. They're not all the same. They don't all do the same function. It's the same in the body of Christ. We are not all the same. We are not clones. Now, we live in a world that attempts to make everybody the same. That's why we have fads in our world. Everybody copies. We look around, we've got Xerox people. They all think the same, look the same, dress the same, talk the same. There's this sameness in the world. Well, God doesn't intend for his church to be that way. We are diverse, we are different, we are unique. You have a spiritual gift that no one else has quite like you do with the measure of faith that you have. And so that tells me that you are a spiritual snowflake. There's no one else quite like you. It bothers me when I see churches where everybody has the same haircut and everybody wears the same clothes and everybody uses the same cliches and everybody has the same translation of the Bible. God loves diversity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, if we were all one member, where would the body be? I heard about a youth pastor who illustrated this by taking a football and painting it like an eyeball. And he brought it into his youth group in a blanket. And he said, she's a great baby. She's quiet. I don't have to feed her. She never needs to sleep. In fact, she can't close her eyes. And she never needs a diaper except when she cries. Well, he made his point. See, the body isn't one member. It's many members, all carrying out different functions. First characteristic is diversity. Second characteristic is unity. In verse 5, he says, So we who are many are one body in Christ. We are one. There's unity. That means there are no lone rangers in the church. There are no drifters. There are no islands. If you're a believer, you are in the body of Christ, and you are linked to every other believer in the body of Christ. We are united together. See, that's the nature of the church. We're not an organization. We're not a business. We're not a group of people who sit and watch paid professionals do the work. We are a living organism, a body united together. The Bible says we're citizens of the same kingdom, we're members of the same family, we're sheep in the same flock, we're branches on the same vine, but perhaps most vividly, we are members of the same body, and there is unity. And then the third characteristic is interdependence. Notice the end of verse 5. And individually members one of another. You know what that says to me? That says we need each other. When I'm hungry, my stomach growls, my eyes look toward the pantry, my feet take me there, my hands pick it up and prepare it, my teeth chew it, my tongue tastes it, my throat swallows it, and my mouth says, mmm. You see, I have many members but they're intimately related. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. 
That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer. When I have a sinus infection and my nose can't breathe, the rest of my body is so concerned that it sits up all night to keep my nose company. That's the way we operate in the body of Christ. There is interdependence. And that diversity and unity and interdependence is nowhere more evident than the, in the area of spiritual gifts because your spiritual gift is really related to what member you are in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 6. He says, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. Now let me give you a de definition of a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a God-given capacity through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to the body. There's a lot of confusion today about spiritual gifts. Some people abuse them, some people neglect them. So let me just give you some principles about spiritual gifts this morning. In fact, we won't get into the spiritual gifts, we'll get into those next week. We'll talk about what they are and how you discern what your spiritual gift is. But let me just give you eight principles this morning about spiritual gifts. Number one, everybody has one. And probably the clearest verse on that is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. If you haven't marked this verse, I'd like you to note it. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. Peter says, As each one has received a special gift... Employed in serving one another. Now notice that. Each one has received a special gift. That tells me if you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. No one is left out. You are an ear, you are a toe, you are a hand, you are a nose in the body of Christ. And what I like about this verse, it says that your gift is a special gift. It's unique. There is no one else exactly like you. And that's true in my body. Even though I have two hands, my two hands are not exactly alike. I have two ears. You may not have looked carefully, but they're not exactly alike. In fact, have you ever been up to the, the magic house and they, they let you cut your face in half? Well, not literally. They cut your face in half. They take your two left sides and put them together. They take your two right sides and put them together. And they look like two totally different people. Because you realize this eye is not like this eye. And they're unique. And that's what he's saying. Each one has received a special gift. Well, let me tell you something. You want to experience guilt-free living in your Christian life? Then figure out what your spiritual gift is. Because when you come to figure out what your spiritual gift is, then you can guilt-free say no to certain ministries because you're going to be saying yes to other ministries where God has graciously equipped you to be functioning. Number one, everybody has a spiritual gift. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you can turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10, Paul lists some gifts, and then he says in verse 11, but we're in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. 
And then verse 18 says, But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. You say, well, how do we decide who gets what gift? We don't. God decides. It's God's will. It's God's desire. He gives each of us a gift, and it's his choice what gift we get. Then thirdly, the purpose is edification. While you're in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, notice verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The verse we read earlier, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. It's for the common good. It's for serving one another. You see, my gift is not for me. It's for you. And your gift is not for you. It's for me. It's for the common good. It's to serve each other. It's for edification. And then the fourth principle. Gifts are not the same as natural talents. Now understand this. Gifts are not the same as natural abilities. You say, well, Mrs. Thurman has a spiritual gift. It's making pies. No, it's not. It's close. But that's not a spiritual gift. You say, well, my spiritual gift is playing the piano. No. Playing the piano is not a spiritual gift. Playing the piano is a natural talent. You see, natural talents come at birth. That's why unbelievers and believers alike have natural talents. Your spiritual gift comes at your new birth. Only believers have spiritual gifts. Now, having said that, let me qualify it this way. You may use your natural talents to express your spiritual gift. See, there's a spiritual gift of helps, helping other people. You may use your natural talent of making pies to express your spiritual gift of helping other people. Or your gift may be exhortation, exhorting and encouraging other people, and you may use your natural talent of playing the piano and singing to encourage and exhort other people through your music. But natural talents are not the same as spiritual gifts. In fact, let me say a little more on that subject. Natural ability doesn't determine what your spiritual gift is. You know, a lot of people look at young guys and they say, well, that guy likes to talk. He enjoys getting up in front of people. He's got a good appearance. I think he's going to be a preacher. I have nothing to do with whether he's going to be a preacher or not. You know, if you take that as the, the qualification for a preacher, then Paul would have flunked. Because Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, how would you like a preacher like that? He's fearful. What? You got one. He's fearful. He's fearful, he's weak, and he's trembling. In fact, history tells us that the best we can tell, Paul was a little short guy with a big nose. And we can determine from Scripture that he probably had a very disturbing eye disease that caused his eyes to just kind of seep pus. 
So you can imagine people, in fact, he says it was offensive to look at. He's up here talking, and you're, you're noticing the pus running down his face. and it, It's offensive. He didn't have all these natural qualifications that you would think of for a preacher. And yet God gave him that gift. In fact, I'm convinced because, let me give you a little personal testimony. I am not a natural speaker. I'm the kid in, in early in school that, that used to give reports and the paper shook so bad that I had to carry some support for the paper because it would shake so bad when I got up in front of the class. That's not my natural inclination. But I am convinced that oftentimes God gives us a spiritual gift that goes counter to our natural abilities because by doing so, he gets more glory. There's a distinction between natural talents and spiritual gifts, and you need to understand that. Fifth principle, our gifts are important. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Corinthians were exalting certain gifts as more important than others. And so Paul writes to them to let them know that every member is important and necessary, that no member is more important than another member. We're all essential in the body of Christ. In fact, the gifts that they were wanting to exalt were the showy gifts. And so Paul makes the point that oftentimes it's the less obvious gifts that are more important. See, my body, some members are bigger and more obvious. Some are less obvious. I have a hand that's very obvious. I have a liver that's not very obvious. Which one can I do without? You see, the one that's not so obvious is oftentimes more essential even in the functioning of the body. All gifts are important. And then sixth principle, and I want you to get this one, gifts are no sign of spirituality. Some people think if you've got a certain gift, you're spiritual. That's not so. Your spiritual gift has nothing to do with spirituality. You can have the gift of preaching and be carnal. You can have the gift of pastoring and be carnal. You can have the gift of teaching and be carnal. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, You are not lacking in any gift. And yet, that was one of the most selfish, carnal churches in all the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, Paul tells us you can have all the gifts minus love and be a zero. You can have all the gifts and be a zero if you don't have love. When you look at the qualifications for an elder in the New Testament, no spiritual gifts are mentioned. Why not? Because a spiritual gift doesn't make you spiritual. And then seventh principle, they are to be used in the power of God. Notice again 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. This is an important principle. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
You see what he's saying there? God supplies the strength to do whatever he's gifted you to do. Which means there's two applications to this. Number one, don't say, I can't do it. Because you have a God-given gift with a God-given faith and a God-given strength to carry it out. Don't say, I can't. On the other hand, don't say, I can do it without God. Because you see, a spiritual gift carried out in the power of the flesh is fruitless. You know how you can tell when you're operating your spiritual gift in the power of God? You get godly fruit. And as this verse says, God gets all the glory. And then there's an eighth principle I want you to see this morning, and that is your spiritual gift can be lying dormant. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, and he said, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. He said, Timothy, you've got a spiritual gift. I want you to kindle it afresh. That means literally to stir it up, to fan the flame. I wonder if there aren't some people sitting here like Timothy this morning. You're a Christian. You've got a gift. You have a measure of faith to operate that gift. You've got God's power to carry it out. But like Timothy, you need to be reminded to stir it up, to use it. In the context of the drama, some of us think we're on the plane and we're sitting in first class asking for another pillow. Well, that's not the case. You see, you are on the plane as a flight attendant, as a mechanic, as a baggage carrier. You are on the plane to serve others. And one of my fears is that we convey the wrong idea and that people get conditioned to think that Christianity is just a series of lectures. That, that, that church is just meeting together and, and people go away saying, well, as long as I took good notes, I'm finished. See, the Bible teaches that's just the beginning. Ephesians chapter 4 says God has given the gift of preaching and teaching and it's designed to equip you to do the ministry. That's why I, I think I'm going to change the bulletin. The bulletin lists the staff on there. I think what I'd like to do is, before the staff, put ministers, every member of the body of Christ. You see, you are the minister. I'm just here to equip you. I'm just here to prepare you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to go out and do the ministry of the body of Christ, to build up that body. And some of you are frustrated in your Christian life. And you know why you're frustrated? You're frustrated because you're a Christian and God has given you a gift and you're sitting on it. You're not using it. And you will never be fulfilled in your Christian experience until you take that God-given gift and you use it in His power for spiritual fruit. In fact, it's interesting to me, this word gift is the Greek word charisma from which we get the charismatic, the emphasis on the gifts. And so it's, the word charisma is this word gift. But you want, know what's interesting? There's another word that comes from this same root. And it's the word joy. Which tells me that joy and service come from the same root. 
So if you want to be happy as a Christian, find your place in ministry and start serving. You see, it starts when you put your body on the altar in verses 1 and 2 as a living sacrifice. From there, you put yourself in proper perspective, humility. And then you put yourself into action in the body of Christ, serving others. That's our challenge this morning. I'm going to ask the praise group to come back, and they're going to sing what is essentially going to be our closing prayer. And that is, refresh my heart. Because some of us here today need to say, God, help me refresh that gift, stir up that gift, fan the flame of that gift that you've given to me so that I'll start to function in the body of Christ the way you've called me. Let's stand together and sing this as our prayer to the Lord today, asking Him to refresh us.